According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, once again in Luke 15. I will make a, an attempt to uh, get our projector up and running here. Wrong one. How about that? Maybe not. No, that's all right. There we go. Try that. Better. All right, we'll try a 1600 by 1200 resolution. And we'll just see if this works. All right, Luke chapter 15, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We uh, got a good start on this last week, I think, and uh, kind of set the table for what's going to follow. And uh, I just don't want to come on, does it? Oh, well. Luke 15. Let's start, uh, start with a word of prayer so at least uh, we can have our thinking uh, sanctified and uh, see what the Lord wants to do after that. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have today to assemble together. We thank you for your faithfulness in all things, guiding us in the truth, teaching us the things of your word. Father, we just commit to you now our time together, whatever you want to do with it, Father, whether equipment works or doesn't work, that's all in your hands. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Well, Jesus never used PowerPoint, right? Thing. The problem when it's 30 feet up in the air is you can't see uh, what the blinking light is or what it's about or why it's blinking or anything. You just see red lights blinking, and that can't be a good thing. Yeah, that's not a good thing. <laughs> All right, well. We'll figure it out later. Luke chapter 15. I'll go ahead and put the slideshow up anyway just so I can look at it. All right. On the heels of chapter 14, where he's uh, gotten a little tough with them. The crowd started to increase, but they were there for the wrong motivation. And so he starts to address them in uh, issues on, in terms of discipleship that uh, there's some sacrifice involved, there's a price to pay, you've got to count the cost, you've got to consider the, uh, the combat that occurs and uh, the things that happen there. At the end of that chapter, he says, He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. Very much similar to what he's going to tell John years later when the Apostle John is tasked to write the book of Revelation. And so on the heels of this, we find out who has ears to hear and who has a mouth to grumble. And it's the uh, tax collectors and the sinners that have the ears to hear. They're positive. They want to hear the teaching. They want to learn about the kingdom of heaven. They want to learn about eternal life and uh, the bread of heaven and all the things that, uh, that Jesus had to talk to them about. The Pharisees, on the other hand, uh, all they wanted to do is um, complain, grumble and complain. This is the goofiest thing I've ever seen. All right, so I'm not going to have a slideshow. That's all right. So let's pick up on verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners, all the tax collectors and the sinners uh, were coming near to him and listening to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable saying. And it's important to keep in mind that the uh, uh, demonstrative pronoun this identifies the story that he's telling. And it's only used one time. Is not used three times. He, he talks about a man, a shepherd, and the lost sheep, and going to find the the one, and uh, because he's not content with the ninety and nine, and uh, the uh, uh, story does not then transition into the the woman and her coin as if somehow it's a different story. It's the same story. This parable is uh, stated in verse three, and it's not restated. Uh, in verse 8, and it's not restated again in verse 11. They're not different parables. It's all one parable being told in three different episodes or three different venues. And so that's something we want to keep in mind. Now, if you're following the outline, we gave you a, a point of context under point 1, uh, dealing with that. And then under point 2, we focus on the lost sheep. We're going to move on today to cover points 3 and point 4, the lost coin and the lost son. Remember the issues involved in the lost sheep, however. This is um, an address to the men. And in speaking to the men, he hits them where it, where it hits them. He hits them in their employment, their, their livelihood, their career, their work. The idea of uh, you know, combat and danger and rescuing the sheep and all the things that are involved in shepherding uh, communicates to the men. He'll change gears a little bit when he gets to the second part. and He starts talking to the women in verse 8. In that uh, illustration, the domain is very much uh, domestic. It's very much a household and opening windows and sweeping the floor and the, the things that happen there in order to find the, uh, the coin that had fallen from her headdress. And we'll address some of the, the history on that, the geography or the uh, cultural aspects of that here this morning, which is really why I wanted the slideshow up and running because I have a lengthy thing to read from Barclay this morning. Oh, well, Lord had better plans, didn't he? Can try it one more time. See what he wants to do. Yeah, it just seems to me that blinking red is bad. All right. Yeah. No. Oh. All right. <laughs> 
So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Rhetorical question. None of them, none of the men there would, would just abandon the sheep and to just cut their losses and consider that, oh, well, I still got ninety-nine. A hundred percent is what the standard is for a shepherd. And that's, a, that's an important principle and pattern because it applies to our own salvation as well. The fact that 1% loss of sheep is unacceptable to a good shepherd. And we took you through uh, John 6 and John 10 and John 17 and John 18. The passages that make it very clear that it's God the Father's will for Jesus Christ to hold on to every single sheep that he gives him. And, and Jesus Christ does not lose one. This is, in my mind, a fatal uh, flaw in the logic of any uh, Arminian or anyone that thinks they can lose their salvation. If they think they're that terrible and that crummy, uh, just stop them and say, you know what? Uh, you are terrible and crummy. I won't disagree with that. But Jesus Christ is not. And he has uh, an assignment to hold on to you. So to lose your salvation, not only do you have to be faithless and throw it away, but he has to be faithless and throw you away. And we know that he's not. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He must fulfill his responsibilities to the Father. And that includes not losing any one of us. What an important uh, principle that is. And if you can take that, just that illustration or that principle, remember a handful of these verses, and be able to show people these things, I think you will do them some huge favors under subpoint c we looked at the uh, uh, role of the shepherd in fighting wild beasts we saw the passage in first samuel 17 where david speaks about his uh, shepherding history uh, as a boy 10 years old 12 years old he's killed lions and bears as well and that's why he's not afraid of goliath and he's got the faith to understand that uh, he's an anointed prophet of god and this philistine has taunted the uh, name of, of yahweh and the faith that David had in that episode. But the illustration there was the role of a shepherd in fighting off the lions and the bears. Likewise, in Amos, Amos 3.12, there's a passage that addresses uh, you, go, you go and you get something. You get an ear or a leg or whatever hunk of meat you can uh, from out of the lion's mouth. And then while you're at it, go ahead and kill the lion and take take uh, <laughs> you know what you can from there too. Get yourself a nice new coat or something. You know, Do something with a pelt. Make a carpet for your wife or whatever you're going to do with it. You can't eat it. It's an unclean animal. But uh, you can at least uh, skin it and, and do something with the, uh, do something with the, uh, the fur. And then finally, as we were running out of time, we were uh, evaluating the fact that it's the live sheep. that's the ultimate source for rejoicing. The fact uh, in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16, Jesus Christ says that his uh, role as shepherd is to bring back the broken to heal the broken and bring back the scattered, to find the lost and to be the good shepherd. So it's an important principle, not only from the standpoint of John 10, but in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as well. Now, where we ran out of time and we're not quite through with the uh, the first chapter here, the first uh, episode of this parable, as we did not take this to the heavenly context. And we have to do that or we, we're wasting our time. The heavenly rejoicing that takes place is the point of what's happening here. Because the Pharisees and the scribes have a non-heavenly attitude. It's an attitude that's compatible with the fallen angels that have rebelled against heaven. It is not compatible with the elect angels that are still in heaven and uh, delighted to, uh, to see God's plan unfold. So as we look at verse 7 then. 
So again, uh, in verse 5, he finds the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. All right, and this is the reality that we have to understand. And so... In your outline then, under main point two, which is the lost sheep, you can give yourself a point D now, a sub-point D. The parable has a heavenly reality. The parable has a heavenly reality. The parable has a heavenly reality. And that's the point. It's the point in all three. You'll spot it in verse 7. You'll spot it again in verse 10. And when you go looking for it at the end of the third episode, uh, it appears that you don't find it, but you do. You don't find it phrased in those words. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But you find it in the explanation that the father gives to his older son. In the explanation, what the father tells him, he says, we have to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. And that is an equivalent statement, a a parallel statement to uh, define and describe why it is in the heavenly places that God's rejoicing, the angels are rejoicing. They're rejoicing over the lost having been found and the uh, elements of death and life that are applied there. Spiritual death, spiritual life, operational death, operational life. And so hopefully when we put all three of these episodes together, you're going to see that. And you're going to identify with either the older brother or the younger brother or both. And you're going to identify with the father as your father in in the recognition that all the father has is ours. It is presently ours. And that's uh, by virtue of our position in Christ, who is the heir of all things. And if we can delight in that, then we can uh, recognize that the real blessing is not the things he gives you but the fellowship you have with him. Now I'm giving it away. Now you're not even going to come back next week. You might even walk out today and say, well, there's no PowerPoint. You've already gave away the end of the story. All right. Well, uh, heavenly reality then. Back up to verse 7. I tell you in the same way, in the same manner, in the same... uh, all of the uh, emotion, all of the passion, all of the excitement that this guy has when he comes back to the town, he's got this sheep and everyone is celebrating over, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. This is an invitation for a group of people to share in the joy and rejoicing that he himself has. Understand that? He's he's inviting. It's an invitation. It's really an imperative. Rejoice. That's an order, right? But it's an invitation for others to share the same attitude that he himself has. And that's the whole point of this parable. God has an attitude. Uh, And that's the attitude we should imitate. That's the attitude we should have. It's an attitude of, of rejoicing. An attitude of joy. God's not grumbling over the uh, tax collectors and Pharisees that are getting saved. <laughs> God's very happy about the tax collectors and the, and the uh, uh, sinners that are being saved. See, the Pharisees are the ones that are grumbling over that. They, uh, they have it in their mind that there are certain folks 
that just really ought not uh, get saved. That uh, they don't deserve it. They're not worthy of it. They're they're they're, they're low. They're they're uh, not appropriate. And in their mind, the idea of associating with these guys is is um, a problem. It diminishes God's glory. I, God would be into the Pharisee pride and arrogance mindset now. God would be diminished. He's less of a God for having such riffraff as his worshipers, right? And uh, how insulting that is that God would have a tax collector, to have a Gentile, and have these sinners. Oh, my goodness. No, drive them out. No part of that. Because our God's too good for that. And what they're doing is they're taking their own pride, their own arrogance, and then they're projecting it onto their idea of God. And so instead of viewing themselves in the image of God, they've crafted God in their image. As they've redefined holiness, they've redefined um, all of these aspects from their mindset that a God who would accept this crowd isn't a God that's worthy of worship to their mind. That's all that is, is just pride and selfishness at work in a horrible way. Well, I think, and I trust you join me in that evaluation, that a God who saves the lowest of the low, that, that, that is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, that's a God that's worthy of even more worship than any of these make-believe gods, these prideful guys can create for themselves. How amazing is that? Because even the greatest specimen of all humanity is still a, a worm anyway when it comes down to it. Why would, any, why would the creator of the universe be impressed with any of us? If you really give that some thought. So here's the heavenly reality. Heavenly joy. Uh, there's three subpoints now under D. Heavenly joy, the first of those three subpoints then. Heavenly joy exists for the righteous in fellowship. Heavenly joy exists for the righteous in fellowship. For the sinner who repents. And what happens in the consequence of the repentance? There's joy. All right, there's joy. Now, the um, one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, here's how we've got to evaluate this. You look at it in two different ways. Look at it in terms of, is this sinner who repents an unbeliever coming to Christ? Or is this uh, a sinner who's saved but walking presently walking in darkness? Confessing his sin, being restored to fellowship. All right, That's the better way to think of this as. And although the commentaries rarely go there, the commentaries tend to view this as a salvation deal. Um, but that's the wrong way to take it. Because understand, first of all, the sheep belongs in the flock. He was in the flock to start with. At the start of the story, the sheep is in the flock. And then he separated from the flock. He went from a place he belonged to a place... He didn't belong, see? And that's a picture of a, of a believer who has gone carnal, a believer who belongs in the flock, but who has, uh, due to his own stupidity or his own carnality, uh, or due to no fault of his own, okay, is not where he's supposed to be. And the uh, opportunity to get back where he's supposed to be is the parable. And it's consistent all throughout. The coin belongs with the other coins. The coin is belongs under ownership principle, belongs to the, to the woman. 
Just because she's lost it doesn't change the ownership of it. She has a right to it. She's entitled to it. It belongs to her. And once she finds it, she retains, you know, or regains custody, possession of a coin that belongs to her in the first place. Same thing with the son. The son is a son of the father at the start of the story. He's a son of the, of the father at the end of the story. And, and all the way in between, he was still a son. Even though he was in a far country and living like a heathen, he was still a son. And that's the point. Both boys are sons. And uh, and the issue there. So this is not a good parable to teach if you're trying to use it in an evangelistic application. Uh, I think it's much better to teach it in terms of a loss of fellowship application. And so, um, again, as the point reads under subpoint one, heavenly joy exists for the righteous in fellowship. That is, once the sinner is restored to fellowship, he is righteous in fellowship. And we view this in terms of, of course, the um, operational life, operational death, the things that happen when you go carnal. Now, that's a reality. That's going to happen whether we rejoice or grumble. Okay, That's going to that's happen whether we have the right attitude and we can rejoice with God in heaven or whether we have the wrong attitude and we're still grumbling in our own mental attitude sin okay and uh what happens then of course heaven still rejoices over that guy who's repented and heaven is presently weeping over you (laughs) waiting for you to repent and have the change of thinking that can join heaven in the rejoicing you understand how that works then and in fact it's even described as as a comparative in comparative terms, where there is more joy, more than. And uh, yes, is heaven happy over the 99 that don't need to repent? Of course, heaven's happy. Heaven is happy, of course, with a believer that maintains fellowship, that never sins, uh, or that you know has stayed in fellowship for this particular time or this particular season. Um, yes, heaven rejoices over that. But heaven rejoices more when the sinner is back in fellowship. That's what this passage is saying. Okay? That's what this passage is saying. And it's, it's an interesting standpoint because there's a part of us that doesn't like that. Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but you can speak of yourself too. Just put yourself in this. Put you... All right, let's, let's be relativistic in our thinking at this point. You and your husband, co-worker, neighbor, friend. I pick out anybody. Just you and a fellow believer... And you're both in equal terms, comparable situations. And then a temptation comes and you resist the temptation to stay in fellowship. Your friend, sister, brother, husband, whoever, they fail. They submit to the temptation. They uh, surrender to their sin nature. They go off and they commit the sin. They do it. They then get convicted of it. They come back. They, they confess. They're restored to fellowship. They're back in fellowship. All right, now, this verse says that the joy is greater. The joy is greater in heaven. All right. And then it gets defined later on in verse 10 in a slightly different way. But the joy is greater for the one that went carnal and came back. It's a greater joy. It's described in comparative terms. All right. Now, there's still joy for the one, but it's a greater joy for the other. And our humanity would rebel against that in many cases. 
Because human viewpoint says, oh, no, 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 it's better to stay faithful and never go off track. Say, isn't that better? Don't you have more joy over that? Is it a little bit alien to your way of thinking? Okay. Put yourself in the parent role. Two children. (laughs) And one's obedient to their parents and one is disobedient to their parents. Which gives you the greater joy? Well, but when the disobedient actually returns, does that give you the greater joy? Anyway, it's interesting, and it may, it may, uh, re- uh, we may have thinking that rebels against. In fact, in uh, the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see the passage there where, again, human viewpoint says, oh, no, no, that's not, that's not right, that's not right, that's wrong. And uh, anytime you approach it on that basis, you've got to stop and recognize that our orientation is relativistic. God's is absolute. God's is absolute. And the grace that allowed you to not sin... The grace that allowed you to stay in fellowship and maintain your uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit and make a right decision because of a doctrinal conviction and so forth. But that was grace too, don't you know? <laughs> so don't get too prideful over the fact that you didn't fall for the sin. Because you could have. The fact that you didn't, just understand what it is it's, that's at work there. So anyway... That's the first subpoint. Heavenly joy exists for the righteous in fellowship. I'm going to look up there occasionally and see if the thing ever stops blinking and we can try it again. All right. Secondly, heavenly joy is greater for the restoration of the sinner to fellowship. So we don't want to deny the fact that if you stay in fellowship, there is a joy there that gets overlooked just because there's more for the sinner that repents. Don't think that there's none at all for the righteous that stays in fellowship. Of course, there's joy for that. Absolutely, there's joy for that. But it's greater. Under point two, heavenly joy is greater for the restoration of the sinner to fellowship. Now, what does Scripture say for point three? What does Scripture say gives God no joy whatsoever? It says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So under point three, there is no heavenly joy for the destruction of the unrepentant. And this is where we turn to Ezekiel. So join me in Ezekiel 18. There is no heavenly joy For the destruction of the unrepentant. No heavenly joy for the destruction of the unrepentant. See, God has perfect inner happiness. God has undiminished joy in himself at all times. But the transitive joy where he can take delight in external objects... There are things in which he has pleasure in and there are things in which his soul takes no pleasure in. And so you and I as creatures will uh, external to God will either please him or displease him. He will either take joy in what we do or he will not take joy in what we do. 
And so we read this now in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 through 32. And there's a larger actual context even prior to that, but we'll, we'll let that go. This is a, we taught Ezekiel back some time back. I think it was 2000, it's been nine years now. So you obviously maybe have not remembered everything we taught in this chapter. But this is, uh, it actually starts with a proverb that the folks in Jerusalem invented. Uh, and they created their own proverb saying uh, in verse 18 two, uh, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. There's a proverb for you. In other words, it's all our parents' fault. <laughs> They're the ones that ate the sour grapes. We're the, one that, we're the ones that have to deal with the aftertaste. We're the ones that have to deal with the nasty effects. Not our fault. And so here's a way that the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem can shift the blame onto their parents and grandparents, previous generations. See, not my fault. It's, uh, you know, it's my mother beat me as a child or my dad was abusive and all this other stuff. Psychology is filled with this stuff. Nothing's ever anyone's fault. It's always, uh, you know, abusive parents or abusive environment or, or previous generations or it was the oppression of society in previous generations and no one's ever accountable for themselves. You ever notice that? So anyway, this is the context in chapter 18 and uh, Jesus Christ doesn't stand for that. And he says, quit using that proverb. It's a lie. <laughs> And uh, basically, in verse 4, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Now, this talks about the righteous, and then you got a, a... It goes through a variety of different illustrations. you got a righteous father and an unrighteous son, or an unrighteous father and a righteous son. And it takes you through separate um, illustrations of that. If we get down now to verse 14, and you see here's a case where there's a, a wicked father and he's got a good son. How about that? Because he, he observes all the father's sins. And, and observing, he learns and says, you know what? I don't want to do any of that stuff. That doesn't seem right. That seems wrong. There's consequences there. I don't like that. So he doesn't eat at the mountain shrines. He doesn't participate in idolatry. He's not a fornicator. He's not doing all these things. Instead, he serves the Lord. So, Jesus Christ says each generation is accountable. And it doesn't matter if your parents were godless, your generation can turn it around. What a blessing. And yet, verse 19, Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity? When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. See, they took this concept about the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation. They took that and, and viewed it in a rigid, legalistic way. Typical. But don't take things in a rigid, legalistic way. Take things in a grace-forgiving way. Because what does that verse say uh, after it talks about the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation? It then says, but showing loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love me. And it only takes that one generation to turn it around. So, 
the uh, son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And uh, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, see, what happens if the good son then sets the right example, and then the, the old wicked dad looks at that and says, you know what, I need to repent. If the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. In other words, he can be rescued out of the sin and the death consequences that he was headed for. All his transgressions, which he had committed, will not be remembered against him. That's a part of forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? You know, when you and I commit sin and do stupid things, is God up there just rubbing his hands and waiting? going to start throwing lightning bolts and I'll show them. I not take any delight in that. He'll do it. He won't like it, but he'll do it. Only so far as it produces the repentance, the discipline that's designed to produce repentance. He'll, he won't like it, but he'll do it. But then as soon as the repentance takes place, guess what? It's done what it's supposed to do. He's not going to continue to punish or continue to, to uh, bring you to harm. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? What a blessing. See, our God is a God that forgives. He's a God that wants to provide life, wants to provide righteousness. He does so freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He has poured out all the wrath he ever intends to pour out when he poured it out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at verse uh, 25. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. See, this tendency in the human realm to insert our own views, to insert our own standards, our own twisted concept of, of what's right and what's not right. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Here come these tax collectors. Here come these sinners. And they want to listen to Jesus' teaching. Well, they shouldn't. That's not right. They should be excluded. They need to get holy first. They need to become Pharisees. They need to study. They need to change their professions. They need to, you know, they need to prove that they deserve to uh, be in our synagogue. Now, it's their attitude that's not right. So there's the uh, there's the point. Now we get into the lost coin under point three. So main point three, the lost coin. And that's verses 8 through 10. Main point three, lost coin. I'll try it one more time and we'll see if that comes up. I'm guessing it's not. I'm guessing that red light means we blew a bulb or something. And I've got to get the ladder out. All right, back to Luke 15. Yes, Luke 15. The uh, prodigal son parable is only told in Luke. Luke 15. Now it's the shortest of the three episodes, but it tells the same story 
as uh, the other two, does so in a uh, feminine uh, realm. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. Does she really? <laughs> I mean, if you lose something and find it, uh, do you just are you happy you found it? And you're, is it is it on? Oh, look at that! Miracle of miracles. <laughs> All right. See, I think we're going to need more um, of these kind of technology miracles. All right. So those are the points I gave you verbally. You didn't see them written down. Hopefully you got them written down now under point D. The parable has a heavenly reality. There is heavenly joy for the righteous in fellowship. The 99 righteous who don't who need no repentance. They're in fellowship. Great. There's joy over that. But there's a greater joy for the restoration of the sinner to fellowship. A greater joy. And uh, now keep in mind the phrase heaven. Who's there? Who's in heaven? God's in heaven. But who else is in heaven? The angels are in heaven. Okay. And in verse 10... The angels are specifically mentioned in the same way I tell you there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about the angels who are watching us. Okay. And of all the angels who ever were, two thirds stayed faithful. One third rebelled. Satan and his angels. Okay. And the two thirds who stayed faithful are like the the ninety nine who need no repentance. Okay. And so they're rejoicing in that. They're thankful for that. They're thankful that believers on earth are using uh, the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God, making right decisions, not sinning, staying in fellowship. That's a cause for elect angels to celebrate. Because that's rather similar to their own situation from their own stewardship, from their own experience. But then the idea of a human being committing a sin, plunging into carnality, and being able to confess that sin and be restored to righteousness. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a component that the elect angels have no relationship to. The idea of redemption. An elect angel cannot relate to redemption. See? And that's, uh, you know, like that song, when I... Sing redemption story. They shall fold their wings. Because there's not one of those angels in heaven that understands the joy that my salvation brings. Anyway, this uh, unique circumstance with that. There is no heavenly joy for the destruction of the unrepentant. And that's where we were in Ezekiel 18, verses 21 through 32. Now that gets us then to point three, the lost coin. So point A, an address to the women speaks to their home and heart treasure. An address to the women speaks to their home and heart treasure. All right. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You understand that? The uh, function of uh, the role as God designed your uh, role in the family and in the with the children and, and uh, towards your husbands and the the uh, the role there. This is just as in the 
realm of uh, shepherding and combat and the workforce and all of that. Uh, that spoke to the man's heart. Here, this speaks to the woman's heart, speaking to the home. Point B. Barclay describes the precious nature of the ten drachma headpiece for a married woman. I'm going to read a, a quote uh, from Barclay here in just a moment. Because this is more than just simply these ten coins were not just simply uh, a stash of, uh, of currency that she had for household expenses. All right, that we normally think of it as. The number ten is significant. And the headdress that was manufactured was a feature of the culture of that day that uh, sometimes gets overlooked in the, in the principle of what's being taught here. It's a reason, I mean, if you, uh, if you, uh, you know, lose something and just misplace it in the house and then find it, and then maybe it's no big deal. You're not going to call your friends and your neighbors and say, hey, you know, I lost my checkbook for a couple of hours, but, you know, I, I, I cleaned the house and, and found it. And uh, your uh, neighbor or, or your sister or your mother or whoever, they might look at you and say, well, you know, all right, great, happy for you. You know, <laughs> if you kept a cleaner house, maybe you wouldn't have lost it in the first place. Or, <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? You know, but in the significance of what this uh, veil was all about, in the significance of what these coins symbolized, it meant something not only to that woman, but it meant something to every woman in her village, in her tribe, in her community, in her culture. It was a significant thing. And every... Um, woman in that day would have understood that. So let's read the slide. I went ahead and made slides instead of trying to bring it up in the Bible software. All right. The coin in question in this parable was a silver drachma worth about four pence. Uh, Barclay was an old British guy in the 1800s, so um, whatever four pence was worth in the 1800s, who put that in today's, who knows. It would uh, not be difficult to lose a coin in a Palestinian peasant's house, and it might take uh, a long search to find it. The houses were very dark, for they were lit by one little circular window, not much more than about 18 inches across. The floor was beaten earth, covered with dried reeds and rushes, and to look for a coin on the floor like that was very much like looking for a needle in a haystack. The woman uh, swept the floor in the hope that she might see the coin glint or hear it tinkle as it moved. And that, again, that's the purpose for lighting the, uh, the, lant, uh, the lamp, uh, lantern and hopefully seeing the glint of the metal or hearing it while, uh, while she was sweeping. There are two reasons why the woman may have been so eager to find the coin. First of all, it may have been a matter of sheer necessity. Four pence does not sound very much, but it was more than a whole day's wage for a working man in Palestine. Uh, these people lived always on the edge of things, and very little stood between them and real hunger. The woman may well have searched with intensity, because if she did not find, the family would not eat. But secondly, there may have been a much more romantic reason. The mark of a married woman was a headdress made of ten silver coins linked together by a silver chain. For years, maybe, a girl would scrape and save to amass her ten coins for the headdress. It was almost the equivalent of her wedding ring. When she had it, it was so inalienably hers that it could not even be taken from her for debt. It may well be that it was one of these coins that the woman had lost, and so she searched for it as any woman would search if she lost her marriage ring. I think that gives a little bit more of the significance to this episode and uh, something in a way that would touch the women. What uh, woman, what gune woman there in verse 8 as uh, 
part of that. In either case, it is easy to think of the joy of the woman when at last she saw the glint of the elusive coin and when she held it in her hand again. God, said Jesus, is like that. The joy of God and of all the angels when one sinner comes home is like the joy of a home when a coin which had stood between them and starvation had been lost and is found. Is like the joy of a woman who loses her most precious possession with a value far beyond money and then finds it again. You know, recognize that there are things that you don't put a monetary value on because of the significance that they have, the, the, the sentimental value that it has. It has real meaning to you and your family and your husband and so forth. Somebody else might look at it and say, well, big deal, <laughs> right? Who cares? Like, uh, you know, you know, different opportunities there. If you travel overseas and you, you get a different perspective for value and uh my my biggest story on that was a story in East Germany, and you're you're shopping for these trinkets and things, and and they're they're dirt cheap. You know, you were getting two marks for the dollar, and then ten to one East German to West German. So every U.S. dollar is giving you twenty East German marks, and and you're buying these little knickknacks and things, and and uh, and here's this peasant, impoverished East German uh, Frau, and she's. Uh, got this thing and she's looking at it and then she's putting it back and then she takes it back and she looks at it some more and she puts it back and then she's figured out how much money she has and trying to figure out if she can afford this thing, right? And you can tell she really, really, really wants it. And you've got six of them in your bag. <laughs> you're ready to go buy six of them, right? Little trinkets because you're going you're gonna to send one to your mom and your sisters and you're back home you're going to ship all these things in and it's just trinkets, and the only, the only uh, thought that went through your mind was making sure you didn't spend too much money on the trinkets so you still had money for the, for the beer tent when you got back to the, <laughs> right? And then you just, you're looking at this frow and you're thinking, wait a minute. There's a perspective here to what's precious in, uh, in one scale of value versus somebody else's scale of value. No Pharisee had ever dreamed of a God like that. Let me back up and re read that previous sentence. The joy of God and of all the angels when one sinner comes home is like this joy. Think about it. That's God's joy. God takes joy in a sinner that comes home. And so no Pharisee had ever dreamed of a God like that. The Pharisees, the God they dreamed of was a God that was impressed with them for the things they were doing. A God that obviously held them in high esteem because they were so holy. And they were so righteous and they had sacrificed so much. And they weren't like that sinner. They weren't like that tax collector. They were good people. God obviously was impressed with them. No Pharisee had ever dreamed of a God like that. A great Jewish scholar has admitted that this is the one absolutely new thing which Jesus taught men about God, that he actually searched for men. The Jew might have agreed that if a man came crawling home to God in self-abasement and prayed for pity, he might find it, but he would never have conceived of a God who went out to search for sinners. We believe in the seeking love of God because we see that love incarnate in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a beautiful picture. Even in terms of their stewardship, Israel was never... They were a light to the Gentiles, but they were never 
missionary minded in the way we think of it. They were never burdened to go to the uttermost ends of the earth and preach the God of truth. They'd go to the uttermost ends of the earth to make someone a son of hell and to make someone a Pharisee, but not to see someone saved by grace through faith. It's an interesting component. The church is commanded to go forth. The Jewish mental attitude was, hey, come to us. We're here. We're the people. We're God's chosen people. The temple is here. You come here. And if you don't come here, well, then we couldn't care less. It's an interesting distinction. Anyway, this is William Barclay in his uh, Gospel of Luke commentary, the Daily Study Bible series. All right. Hey, it worked. I'm kind of proud of that. I designed that yellow button to take me back to this slide here. Isn't that great? All right, the things I'm impressed with. Once again, once again, the heavenly joy is described as the reality for this episode. The parable is teaching a reality. The reality is that heaven rejoices when the lost is found, when the lost sinner is found. The heavenly joy is described as the reality for this episode. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just figured out why I'm so out of sorts. I've got an empty coffee cup up here. That's worse than the projector. Jesus might have taught without PowerPoint, but I know he didn't teach without coffee. That, <laughs> I, I can prove that. All right. So, heavenly joy, heavenly joy. It's going to be the story now for the third story. Let's move on. And we'll get, uh, we've got six minutes to teach the prodigal son. Or we come back. Oh, don't worry about it, Doug. I'll, it's only six minutes left in class. I'll suffer for Jesus and we'll, uh, we'll get some. Uh... <laughs> All right. The lost son. Now, again, the problem is we know the story too well. Okay. A dad, two boys. Uh, the younger boy wants his half of the or his portion of the inheritance. Skips town and blows it all. Comes back, has no right to come back, but he's accepted back. Older brother pouts about it. Uh, we know the story very well. Even unbelievers know this story. It's one of the best-known Bible passages, even among non-Christians. They at least know the story. But don't get caught up in the story and miss the point. And the point is the same point that was made with the lost coins, the same point that was made with the lost sheep. It's the same point that needed to be made when this chapter began. In the sense that there were those coming to hear Jesus and there were some prideful, arrogant son-of-a-guns that did not want them there. Just like the prideful, arrogant, older older brother didn't want that son coming back. Didn't want, uh, even disowned him as a brother. He doesn't say, my brother came back. He said, this son of yours. Right? This son of yours. Like you do sometimes. When your husband comes home from work and she says, let me tell you what your son was up to. Or your daughter. All right. It's a classic way of expressing, uh, it's not my son. All right. He says, not my brother. The son of yours. 
So let's not lose the uh, point by being caught up in the story. The um, tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's the same grumbling as these, this older brother. This older brother is the, the Pharisee attitude. Now, so point A. The third telling of this principle has three main characters. And then it doesn't tell us their names or make-believe people anyway. So we'll just call them Pater for father, Neodoros for younger, and Presbuteros for older. And I'm sorry, I meant to transliterate that for you on the slide and forgot to do that. Pater for father. So we get paterology, the study of the father, pater, the Greek word pater, or the Latin pater. All right. English uh, expression of uh, patrology or patristics, anything that studies the church fathers. Um, the uh, patriarchy that uh, modern feminism rails against. You know, all of Western civilization is just this wicked patriarchy and now we're going to rebel against the patriarchy and all this other stuff. All right. <laughs> Neoteros is a word for younger. If you think neos meaning new, it's a comparative form. Neoteros meaning younger. Sometimes it's used sub substantively, in which case it's just simply a young man, an adolescent. The, the Latin Vulgate uses adolescent in this passage for the younger man. And then presbuteros, P-R-E-S-B-U-T-E-R-O-S, presbuteros. It's fairly readable, isn't it, even if I don't transliterate it? The N looks like an N, right? It's just the little W-looking things that you've got to remember are long O's, so the omega, neoteros. And the, the tau looks like a T, and the epsilons look like E's. Okay, the row looks like a P. So, yeah, you don't want to say neotepos, it's neoteros. And that final sigma looks like, a, looks like an S, doesn't it? A little squiggly S, dripping down over the deal. Neoteros and presbuteros. See, you know the row isn't a P because pi is a P, right? So the pi that starts pater and the pi that starts presbuteros, and then you've got a P and an R right next to each other. P-R-E-S... B-U-T-E-R-O-S, presbuteros. You know any Presbyterians? It's where presbuteros comes from. Or where Presbyterian comes from. I said that wrong. Presbyterian comes from presbuteros or presbuteo and different things. All right. So you got a father, pater. You got neoteros or knucklehead, whatever you want to call him. And then you got presbuteros. Presbuteros. And I want to give him a nickname too, rhyming with the, uh, or playing off the boot in uh, Presbuteros, because he's a, he's a boot. All right. He's uh, stuck up, full of himself, prideful, arrogant, Presbuteros. All right. Those are the three characters. Now, strictly speaking, here's what Lang says. Strictly speaking, both the sons here are lost. Strictly speaking, both the sons here sketched are lost. The one through the unrighteousness that degrades him, the other through the self-righteousness which blinds him. Isn't that a beautiful quote? 
That's a wonderful quote. The one through the unrighteousness that degrades him, the other through the self-righteousness which blinds him. They're both lost. That's why it's actually easier giving the gospel to the morally depraved, the immorally depraved rather than the morally depraved. The self-righteous crowd thinks they're all right and they don't need to be saved. They're okay. They're good people. The sinner, he knows he's no good. <laughs> all right. And, and Jesus testified to that. It's actually harder for the self-righteous. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. Uh, we'll get the details. The uh, younger son who's actually looking to disown himself from his father's estate and go out and make his mark in the world and different things like that. But we'll save that for next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. And uh, what a blessing. We actually had a projector for the last 20 minutes. Isn't that something? Miracle of miracles. Which one of you is praying for that? All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness, for all things, Father. You are faithful. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. Because, Father, we're the lost sheep. We're the lost coin. We're the lost sons. And you were well pleased, uh, Father, to save us. Not only to save us, but to make provision for our restoration to fellowship when we uh, return back to our uh, vomit, when we return back to the mire. Thank you for doing so, Father, for designing such a grace-eternal perspective. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.